0: Welcome to Is It Halloween Yet? Episode 19, a spooky little podcast where we talk about all things horror and ask, Is it Halloween yet? I'm afraid not, ghouls, ghosts, and goblins. It's 277 days until Halloween. I'm your ghost, Dispenser. Let's see what we have on the slab this week. We've got a bunch of news, and our film of the week is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. It may be cold outside, but the video game news this week is hot. Team Clout showed us the grotesque beauty of the Unreal Engine 5 when they showed off clips from their upcoming zombie shooter, Ill. The body horror the team showed on both YouTube and Twitter is impressive. It's gore, unlike anything we've seen in video games. We don't have a bunch of details yet about what this game will eventually be, but these clips have me excited for this generation of horror as well as the game Ill. Exorcism-based co-op game Obsidio got a big update this week. The game launched in Early Access on Steam earlier this year. This week's update brings UI and AI updates as well as adds everyone's favorite holiday villain, I'll bet a little bit late, Krampus to the mix. Modder Preydog has delivered on the promise of his Resident Evil 2 and 3 VR mods. The mods work with the OG Steam copies of the game, so you can experience even the cutscenes in VR. Hopefully, Capcom will bring these kind of treatments to Resident Evil Village. It has been a little bit strange to me that Resident Evil Biohazard did have a PS VR exclusive VR game and that the same deal was not struck for Village. Whatever, hopefully, one day we'll get to see our seven foot tall vampire lady in VR. If you followed me over here for my former podcast, The Weekly Patch, then I'm sure you know how much I dislike the former studio heads at Sony Ben. The following story is part of why that reason is. Days Gone was a perfectly average, boring zombie game that hit the market about 3-5 to years too late, and it was always going to be a second-tier zombie game in the Sony lineup after The Last of Us. It has a strong and vocal community of people who love it, and while it's sad that That community will not get a sequel. The professionals who made the game continue to act like spoil brats. Case in point, Jeff Ross couldn't let the celebration of another game's success go by without complaining about how Days Gone was treated by Sony. Ghost of Tsushima was celebrating 8 million copies sold. Jeff Ross took to Twitter to say, At the time I left Sony, Days Gone had been out for a year and a half and a month and sold over 8 million copies. It's since gone on to sell more than a million plus on Steam. Local studio management always made it feel like it was a big turn disappointment. That turned out not to be quite accurate because Ross was getting his information from a trophy site. So that's just that 8 million people had played it. They could have bought many of those copies on sale, on used, borrowed it. You could have multiple users on PS4 where they were using the same PS4 to play one copy of the game. It just feels weird that he would, A, use such kind of dodgy information to back up his point, and B, that he just cannot be happy for Uh, the team that made Ghost of Tsushima. He's got to, he uses every opportunity he can to dig at Sony. And at this point, it's just disappointing. Like, just own the game that you made and, like, appreciate the fans that you have. I don't know. I just, it doesn't sit with me the right way. Survival horror shooter set in the Victorian period, Gloomwood is headed out later this year. The game's trailer shows off the game's very thief-inspired gameplay. Your weapons of choice are a cane sword and a six-shot revolver. Gloomwood is headed into early access on Steam later this year. Browser game Survive the Scream House 360 is a clever marketing campaign for the most talked about horror movie that I have still not yet seen, Scream. The game lets you walk around the house and... Talk with everyone's favorite chatterbox killer, Ghostface. Uh, it has a component of Scream trivia, so go try your hand at it. You can find a link to it in the show notes. Magic Fish Studios have nailed down a final release for Nightmare. It will be headed to the PS4 or PS5 on March 24th. You can pre-order the game from Maxim Games' website or pick it up on the or on the PlayStation Store. After lots of speculation, Stalker 2 officially got pushed from its April 28th date to December 8th. Stalker 2 is the biggest project in the history of GSC and it requires thorough testing and polishing, the developers said in a post. This decision was not an easy one, but we are going to do the best possible to deliver you a game that can live up to the expectations and good on them for wanting to live up to expectations and not send another broken game into the world. Moving on to TV news, Netflix gave us a date for the Korean zombie series All of Us Are Dead. The trailer shows an outbreak at a school, and all the zombies and the effects look fantastic. I can't wait to binge this series later this week on January 28th. Also from Netflix, we got the trailer for The Woman in the House, Across the Street from the Girl in the Window. The title gives away that the series is a spoof on all the popular murder mysteries of the past few years. It stars Kristen Bell and Tom Riley, and it also debuts on January 28th. Um, I. Probably will check it out after I see what the general consensus around it is. I think it might be a little bit too silly for my taste, but it does have a lot of the team that was behind The Good Place, so maybe it's going to be fantastic. And finally, out from Netflix this week, we've got Archive 81. It's out now. An archivist who store, who restores a damaged collection of videotapes from 1994. The tapes belong to a documentary filmmaker who was investigating a dangerous cult. James Wan is an executive producer, and the project is based off a found footage podcast of the same name. You can watch it now on Netflix. The trailer for Sci Fi's new horror monster hunter show, Astrid and Lily Save the World, dropped. It's giving me Huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer vibes. Both Jane Morrison and Samantha Aquan look adorable and amazing in the title roles. The show premieres January 26th on USA and Sci Fi and continues just on Sci Fi after the premiere. We got an interview with Noah Hockley where he talked about this year's, maybe next year's FX Hulu Alien show. He says that it's going to be great. It's going slowly, unfortunately, because given the scale of it, and that Alien is a fascinating story, not because it's just a monster movie, but it's about how we're trapped between the primordial past and the artificial intelligence of our future, and both are at a point where they're trying to kill us. It is set on Earth in the future. He describes it as a moment where Edison versus Westinghouse versus Tesla, but like of the future variety, right? Someone was going to monetize electricity. We don't know just which one it is, he said. Uh, I'm very excited. I don't think we're going to see this show until 2023. I also think it could possibly be a 2024 show. But I have been pretty down on Alien in the last long while now. Prometheus didn't do anything for me. The last movie didn't do anything for me. Um, I hope that this... Does a better job of making um, the corporations the villain, which I feel like if he's talking about Edison versus Westinghouse versus Tesla, we're definitely going to get some of that like corporate messaging that I think is important to Alien that has been lost in the last several films, I feel. And in some sad news, Amazon has tragically cut short the awesome potential of I Know What You Did Last Summer. They announced that the show would not be picked up for a second season. I know people, myself included, weren't thrilled with the finale, but that show's bones were great. I feel like it was prime to have, like, the Star Trek glow up where it has, like, a mediocre first season and then an awesome second season. So, I don't know. It's sad that Amazon just stopped when they did Uh, i think that's a decision they could come to regret because with how well scream has been received i think we're going to see a lot of 90s slasher revivals and they were poised in a place to really capitalize on that if they would have continued with the show we got movie news for you nicholas cage talks about his upcoming role as count dracula with variety he said that he looked at Bella Lugosi's performances and he looked at Frank Lalangia's performances. Cage said he also uh, modeled a little bit of his character after Gary Oldman in the Francis Ford Coppola in 1992 version. He said, Coppola, by the way, is uh, Nicolas Cage's uncle. Uh, Coppola... Uh, Cage said, I looked at Gary's performance in Uncle's movie, which I think is just so sumptuous. Every frame is a work of art, he said. And beyond that, looking at Dracula's of the past, he has a few interesting outside uh, inspirations beyond the iconic men who have played the character in the past. He really wanted it to have a unique way of how we see it. He says, I'm thinking, really focus on the movement of the character. You know, I saw Malignant and I thought what she did with those moves, and even Ringu with Sadako. I want to look at what we can explore with the movement in the voice. And if we get a very poppy and, like, unnaturally moving Dracula, I think it's going to be cool. I don't know how it is going to square with my belief that Dracula is the ultimate like sexy villain if he he, if he moves like Sadako I can't really see him being if he moves like Sadako I can't really see him being sexy you know what I'm saying it just doesn't really I don't know it just doesn't I don't, <laughs> there will be an aspect of the character I think will be rossed. Freddie Prince Jr., everyone's favorite Quinari, tweeted out, I wanted to make another horror movie ever since I Know What You Did last summer wrapped, but I've never found the right one. But I think this year it's going to happen. Fingers crossed, dude. I love Freddie Prince Jr. He's done excellent voiceover work. He was great, and I know what you did last summer. And I hope we do get to see him in horror. I think he'll just have fun. He is really great at roles that are big and expansive and he kind of gets to like be ridiculous and own the room and I think that he has horror villain icon written all over him. Sony has pushed the Spider-Man vampiric spinoff Morbius to April 1st from January 29th. I think this is probably a smart idea since Omicron seems to have its teeth deep in us. I don't know if April is a far enough push, but I hope that we can start seeing movies in theaters by then. Like, I'm not super hopeful we're going to see many movies in theaters, maybe a couple in the summer, but I would like to get back to going to the movie theater. I miss going to see movies in theaters, even though the experience the last several times I've gone hasn't been great. Keanu Reeves is set to star in the upcoming H.H. H. Holmes biopic pick, The Devil in the White City. We don't know if Reeves will be playing America's first serial killer, H.H. Holmes, or Daniel H. Burnham, the architect of his Chicago home dubbed The Murder Castle. If you're interested in the story, you can read the book by Eric Larson of the same name. Candyman 2021 is getting a little bit of Oscar buzz. The award show is chronically allergic to giving credit that is due to horror films, but we are seeing that the Robert a. Key and the Aubrey Lowe score is being pushed for best score of the year. Let's hope that nomination comes through. That movie definitely deserves score and cinematography and editing, if you ask me. I think those three parts of that film are Some of the best from last year. The man who first scored a hat trick in the MCU, John Watts, director of the Spider-Man trilogy, is headed into horror with his next project, a Final Destination movie for HBO Max. That's all we know now, but you will catch me day one watching that Final Destination movie. I've suffered through all of them. (laughs) I think John Watts is the kind of director who could do something cool with the series. So that's exciting. We are getting closer and closer to Blumhouse's adaptation of... Stephen King's classic Firestarter, and much like the 84 movie, we learned that the film is rated R. We still don't have a release date yet on this one, but I'm hoping soon. Can we get a trailer also? Speaking of Blumhouse, Jason Blum is out here teasing again that Happy Death Day 3 is something that could happen. He's done this before, late last year. Hopefully we see the fruit behind his behind-the-scenes work soon. Otherwise, I'm gonna start not believing it's true. Uh, This is the second time he said that something's going to happen, so please don't dangle that out in front of us, Jason. If, like me, you've spent the better part of the beginning of the year dodging spoilers for all the theater-only releases, at least you won't have to wait much longer for Guillermo del Toro's new fic, Nightmare Alley. It's coming to Hulu and HBO Max at the end of the week. February 1st, the movie's going to be there, so you've only got, like four more days to do it We're we'll make it. We're going to make it four days is all you have to make it. <laughs> Allison Williams has signed on to star and produce in the AI horror film, Megan. That's spelled with a three instead of an E. The story comes from Akia Cooper and is based off of a story by James Wan. That duo is the duo that gave us malignant. Uh, we found out that it will hit theaters on January 13th, 2023. So that's exciting. Um, I'm excited to see more things from Cooper and Juan. I think that she really understands Juan's flair for the dramatic and crafted malignant into something that was fun and weird and not what anyone expected. So I can't wait to see that. We finally found out what Bong Joon-ho is going to follow up his Oscar award winning film Parasite with. It looks like a new sci-fi thriller by Edward Ashton that hasn't even hit the bookstores yet. Mickey 7 won't make its way our hands until... Mickey 7 won't make its way into our hands until next month, but what we know is that the story revolves around an expendable clone worker who must hide his replacement clone Mickey 8 from his fellow workers or run the risk of being recycled into protein. Deadline also let us know that Robert Pattinson is in talks with the famed director to star. Honestly, I cannot wait to see where Bong Joon-ho takes this dark sci-fi story. The story sounds great, you will catch me reading that book next month, and if Robert Pattinson wants to to do it, you know it's gonna be a little weird. He hasn't like he has traditionally picks very strange science fiction to get be a part of. So that all sounds exciting. <music> Moving on to home releases. The 1986 classic The Hitcher is headed to 4K Ultra HD and Blu-ray this year. Second Sight Films out of UK out of the UK will be overseeing the project. They took to Twitter a few weeks to go to let us know that they had, quote, tracked down the original camera negative and will be doing a full restoration for 4K and Blue K, 4K and Blu-ray release later this year. So that probably means that the Ultra 4K will be available everywhere for playable and the Blue K will be region locked to the region that is England. What is that? B2? I don't know. I could never remember Blu-ray regions. (laughs) Rose, a love story about a woman with a vampiric parasite illness will be headed to all digital platforms on February 8th. Also on February 8th, you can Welcome Home, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. It's headed to 4K and Ultra HD. Death Game is getting a Blu-ray release on March 8th. The movie is most famously known for being the source material for the Keanu Reeves-led remake, Knock Knock, that was directed by Eli Roth. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can pre-order a copy from Grindhouse releasing. And finally, another film I've been dying to see, Demonic by Neil Blunkamp hits Blu-ray on March 1st. We've got a little bit of extras, um, mostly surrounding the catalog release for Trick or Treat Studios. Actually, that's all it is. Um, Trick or Treat Studios really knows how to treat horror fans well. They let us know that we will be getting three masks from the Fear Street series. Uh, The masks include the Skull Mask Killer, the Nightwing Killer, and everybody's favorite killer kid, Billy Barker. I definitely need that Skull Mask. I love it it's great um it's perfect it's also a little redundant considering i need the next three masks that we're going to talk about too we also found out for them that they will be making 40th anniversary halloween three mask the ghost the witch and the pumpkin favorite icons of this podcast will be headed to us in the new forms along with three t-shirt costumes to go with him i cannot wait to murder my bank account to get the entire set this is stretch on an open request line on k oakland burke Burnett, texas red river rock and roll from the tip top of the dallas fort worth metroplex And now it's time to deep dive into the second film in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series. We are marching forward with this series. The next three episodes will be double features. So this is our last single feature. I had a lot of hard time getting my head around what I wanted to say about this. That was part of the delay. And I was also like trying to find out as much stuff as I could about the production and making of the film. And that took a while. And I also like am starting to come to realize that while I think Leatherface is scary, I don't know if I actually like Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a series. I like this movie. I think it's funny and weird. But your taste changes as you grow up. So maybe that's just what happened. Maybe I've just grown past Texas Chainsaw Massacre at this point. I don't want that to be the case, but let's get into Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. The film was released on August 22nd, 1986. That is 12 years after the first film. Hooper was not going to direct the film. He was only going to produce, but he could not find anybody to direct the film in the budget that Canon Films had given him. So, he took the duties upon himself. The biggest difference between... The first film and this film is that the first film, there is no gore. It is all mental implied gore. And the second film's special effects was headed up by none other than the icon of special effects himself, Tom Savini. The film has so much more gore and so many beautiful effects in it. You, It's shocking that this campy black horror has such good like special effects craft and it's just because we've got Tom Savini. Many people at the production company Canon Films thought that Hooper was making a horror movie and he is definitely not making a horror movie. It is very dark black comedy. Uh, he says that he did that because the first one he wanted to have an edge of black comedy to it and no one appreciates that we've heard humor humor it is straight up terrifying uh Gunnar Hansen was offered the role of ratherface but ultimately did not reply reprise the role there are several stories as to what went down um most of them have to do with pay uh Hanson was offended that they were going to give him a day rate plus 10 for his manager. And when he informed them that he didn't have a manager or an agent, they said, OK, well, then you can get day rate. And he was like, well, what? Like, like what? And like, I get that. Like, if you don't have a manager or an agent, you are your own manager and agent. So like, just give him the plus 10. You had it budgeted in. I'd be offended too. (laughs) Uh, Horror icon Bill Moseley gets his first supporting role and his entry into the genre he would define. He got this role in a very strange way. He had made a Texas Chainsaw Massacre short uh, that was called Texas Chainsaw Manicure. It takes place in a Texas beauty parlor. And he played the hitchhiker in that. So through a series of events, this short got into uh, Toby Hooper's hands and uh, he kept him in mind for the sequel. He brings him back as this twin brother of the hitchhiker named Chop Top, who is arguably one of the highlights of this film this film is definitely more its parts and not the sum of them (laughs) the film received an x rating so it was sent to theaters unrated uh tv previews and trailers stated that due to the nature of this film no one under 17 will be admitted i would love to know it would get an r rating today there's no way it would get an x today but that's just i mean like just sending it out kind of to die unrated into the theaters because Again, ratings really limit what gets shown and where it will show and what theater chains will show it. Um, The film did okay. It had a moderate success and it really is a cult classic among horror fans. One more quick fun fact about the movie. Uh, The film was banned in Germany and in Singapore and... The UK's BBFC refused to rate the film and didn't give the film an 18 until 2001. The film was also banned for almost 20 years in Australia. So you didn't get to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 until the mid 2000s in Australia. That's wild. I can't imagine there has to be some like excitement and letdown. Like I feel like I feel like the movie that that was for me was House of a Thousand Corpses. Do you remember all the, like, hubbub around that movie when it came out? Um, I remember the tiny Midwestern town that I lived in. Uh, There was no way we were going to get House of a Thousand Corpses. And we ended up pirating it off the internet to watch it on this. And it was, like, the size of a postage stamp because it's the mid-2000s, early 2000s and there's like seven of us crowded around this computer watching this movie on a postage stamp trying to understand why it was not being played or showed or got the rating that it got. Um, I feel like there has to be a little bit of that like energy to this movie in the UK and Australia. But let's get into the film itself. The film starts off with two little shits on their way to the OU football game. Um, These two characters, we have definitely seen the hippies swapped out for yuppies in this film. These two boys are just so over the top assholes that you are like really rooting for them to, to just get got. The subsequent chase between them and the Sawyer family, I really feel is a fresh and fast paced Entry to this film. Like the last Moon*, starts off very slow. We have the camera pops and the slow pan out from the cemetery on the desecrated body. This does not do that. It's like way more fast paced. It also really gives us a great intro to our heroine of the film, Stretch. We get quite a bit of time with her in the beginning before horrific things start to happen to her that really make her feel like a character. Where like Sally Hardesty is, is a final girl and she's that prototype for the final girl. You can really see that the subsequent films that... Texas Chainsaw Inspired are coming back in to inspire Texas Chainsaw in the way that we talk about Stretch. Just the way Stretch feels like a person. Stretch is a radio DJ who is got an open request line. She gets a uh, call from these two boys who are just jerks and a-holes and um, she gets them off the line and then they call in later that night again, after they have had like a run in with the Sawyer family in a game of chicken. After that, they call in night has fallen. Um, They call in and Stretch happens to capture their murder on tape. It's a very fun sequence, I think, with the zombie decaying body, which I think is a good callback to that first shot of the decaying body we see in the first film. It also is a good introduction to Leatherface, I think, if you haven't seen Leatherface before. If this is your first time seeing Leatherface, you really get that the grotesqueness of the Sawyer family right off and you get a phenomenal kill where we see the top of the driver's head is sawed off, and we get this great shot of them driving the car and blood coming up out of the half sawed off top from behind. It's like, it's good. I really like that shot. So after that, we are introduced to lefty and right. He was a Texas Ranger. He is more importantly the aunt, the uncle, the aunt and uncle, the uncle of Sally and Franklin Hardesty. So he has been on a quest. He has been a dog with a bone for the last 12 years, trying to figure out what happened to Franklin. Because what we learn is Sally comes back, she tells the police, hey, all this horrific stuff happened to me. And the police are kind of like, yeah, that's great, but mm, don't don't really care. And that's, that's, that's a little frustrating. They, they search, but like, it kind of feels like they don't do their due diligence and you kind of get that feeling, that feeling from Lefty that they just didn't do their due diligence. They say in the title crawl that to the law, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre never happened. Which is got to be hard for the Hardesty family and for Lefty's family, right? Like, you know your nephew is missing. Your niece is catatonic from an experience that happened and nobody is willing to help you. Lefty being played by Dennis Hopper is a real boost to this film. There are many times in this movie where you're just like, why is Dennis Hopper here? It happened. He was having like a little bit of a career like lull and he took the chance to play this a couple months later blue velvet will come out and revitalized Dennis hopper's career as a movie star but luckily we got him in this because i think that what really holds the camp of this movie together is him watching him go from this like drunken cop to a man Wielding three chainsaws and fighting with Leatherface in the third act is great. Like his ability to like smell bullshit and be on top of it and give you those quippy, whippy Dennis Hopper vibes in the beginning and then just descended to madness really helps bring this movie together for me. After we are introduced to Lefty, we are brought back into the Sawyer's web of cannibalistic destruction we find that the cook from the first trim who we know is Drayton Sawyer has just won a chili contest for the Texas Northern Texas and Oklahoma. Chili cook-off. Uh, we find this out because Stretch goes to see Lefty and she basically gets booted out of his room. He won't take her tape. He won't listen to her tape. She's probably the only person in Texas who actually believes him and he just dismisses her, which is a weak point for me in the film. I don't really understand it. I could understand dismissing her because you don't want her to get hurt and taking the tape, but it doesn't... I don't know. It, feel, it makes... Lefty's character feel a little weird. It's one glaring mistake, I think, in this movie that is pretty otherwise campy and knows what it's doing. After Lefty sends her away, she is doing radio coverage for the chili cook-off that drayton sawyer wins uh he lets everyone know that his secret to success is an eye for prime meat which is gross then he we see a woman take a bite of his chili and crunch down on a tooth which he says oh that must be one of them hard peppercorns just gross just mm, okay so these people are eating meat i think I think he makes it so overt because I don't think people realized that they were eating meat in they were eating people in the second one. I just don't think that that was like they didn't really hammer that home. So I think that they really put it out on front. I think that's a lot of what this movie is doing is amping up the themes that I think Hooper didn't feel were respected or represented or handled not handled well or um came off the way that he wanted them to in the first one which is cool like if you are going to basically sort of kind of make the same film and take a bite second bite at that apple really hammer home the distinctions between them i mean toby hooper does a great job of that in this film After he sends her away and after the chili cook-off, Lefty goes to a chainsaw store in one of the most bizarre scenes I've ever seen. Dennis Hopper is just, like, hacking away at this log, disturbing the chainsaw Door owner like if i was him i would have just walked back in that shop and locked the door because he is just acting completely unhinged and he and it's a good like foreshadowing of the events to come because he's just going to lose his mind in the third act i wish we would have gotten a scene that explained why he has a change of mind right we just see him go to the chainsaw store and then he shows up and is basically begging stretch to broadcast the tape of the two boys murder so she does so every hour on the hour for the next afternoon and she's got callers calling in and they're just angry and lg her producer is like you're gonna get in a lot of trouble for this and she's like nah it's fine like People complain about, I think that she really liked, she's like, it was a request and people complain about the requests every day. So <laughs> that was pretty funny. I thought it was like a, a funny way for her to handle it. She's waiting for Lefty to come back. She shoes LG out, LG goes to get coffee. And we start into one of the most disturbing scenes, I think in the entire franchise. So inter Bill Mosley as Chop Top. His mannerisms, the way he speaks, it's all this weird affected like hippie 60s groovy guy and it works in such a great way that I think only Bill Mosley could pull off. He is the archetype for most of the characters that Bill Moseley will play. He will play varying different degrees of dark or funny but he always has this very him about him way of being funny and a clown, but also at the same time murderous, murderous and terrifying. It's a talent. And I think it's one that is not respected from him by people outside of genre fans. It is something, it is hard to be both funny and terrifying. It takes a really good understanding of timing and the knowledge of how jokes and tension and horror all work together. And he is the master. Chop top and stretch, uh, meet. Stretch is doing everything she can and using all of the woman's toolbook to diffuse the situation and and get Chop Top out of the radio studio as quickly as possible. She gives him a tour and she says, oh, the tour will end at the exit sign. So she shows him all of this kind of fluffy bullshit stuff on her desk and then is like, boom, there's the exit, gotta go. And he's like, he just like won't leave, right? He lures her over to the record vault and that gets us set up for one of my favorite jump scares in all of horror movies so for not like saying for having the big hot take of I don't know if I like Texas Chainsaw Massacre it does have a lot of things that I do like individually in pieces this jump scene where Leatherface comes hauling out of the record library or the record vault record library I guess that would be the same thing the record vault is Unexpected, like you, you keep knowing that Leatherface has to be around. If one of them is around, then Leatherface has to be around. Where's Leatherface? Where's Leatherface? Where's Leatherface? And for him to obviously just come out of the doorway instead of like bust through a wall is surprising. I feel like that it just is like a surprising turn of using something that would be so obvious against you, which. A really good jump scare to me is one that would be set in a place that would be obviously for a jump scare, but your expectations have been subverted that the jump scare would come from somewhere else, and then they flip it around you and do it on the obvious one. So this one really fits that. He cuts Bill Moseley's wig, exposes Chop Top's uh, metal plate, which he got in Vietnam. There is some chatter around that, but this is leading us into one of the most controversial and uncomfortable scenes in not only just the series, but maybe in all of horror. The scene is weird and dark and uncomfortable. So Stretch runs like every good vinyl girl does. And she's cornered in the closet by Leatherface after a bunch of back and forth between Leatherface and Chop Top and LG coming back in and him being downed by Leatherface. There's like a bunch of stuff that happens in the lead up to him coming into the closet through the wall and pointing his chainsaw between her legs we all can see the giant implications of what that means the thing i do like about this scene is what i think they were trying to go for is a beauty and the beast like twist here right like Leatherface not being able to slaughter her immediately adds depth and dimension and character to Leatherface that I think we need yes it is Beauty and the Feast but Beast is an irredeemable cannibalistic monster so what happens when it's really evil versus good and evil is infatuated with good so we see that and how that is going to play out through the rest of the part of that film. I think that the dimension is needed, right? Like Leatherface is pretty one-dimensional in the first film. He's pretty one-dimensional in this film. He has a slight bit of character development, I guess you would say, in the fact that he is feeling feelings for Stretch. He comes out and he lies to Chop Top that he he got Stretch, which is going to end up being the downfall of the Sawyer family in this film, because not we're going to get other films, which I don't know how we get a third one after this. It'll be interesting to see you next week. We get stretch chases after Chop Top and Leatherface. And she's also being followed by Lefty, who he lets the audience know that he was using her, and it worked. He used her as bait, and he gets access to Leatherface's family's domain, right? Which is in this broken down amusement park. Uh, they have... Miles and miles of tunnels underground and... Lefty tries to save Stretch from falling down into it, but the the bone hand he gives her like fails and she falls into hell, basically, I think is the implication we're supposed to get. That's why they're underground. The set design on this is fantastic. I think if you watch this movie more than once, like just look in the backgrounds of these sets for all the weird, interesting, strange things that are collected back there. Her falling down the hole... She stumbles around down there and finally makes her way to the kitchen where she is hiding behind a cook pot while Leatherface is skinning alive her friend LG. LG, he finally Leatherface finally finds her. He, as a sign of affection, I guess, gives her LG's face to wear and puts it on her, which is just horrifying on so many levels. He then proceeds to like have to go off and deal with the preparation of food and sandwiches for the big Texas football game that is happening. Drayton is losing his mind that they're not going to be ready. He goes off and does that. Eventually, because he keeps coming back to like see her, Drayton and Chop Top find out that Leatherface lied to Chop Top and that he is harboring this girl. And Chop Top comes out and is like, ooh, Leatherface has a girlfriend, and Drayton is not okay with that. Uh, he says it's sex or the saw, and the saw is family. Okay, dude. <laughs> we then get a setup for, again, what I think is an important scene in the lineage of these films. We get a family around the table with a grandpa killing scene, and it is like very close to the original. Uh, We have Chop Top and Leatherface holding down Stretch while Grandpa barely can hold on to a hammer, but he does eventually get a couple swings in. Uh, At one point, it looks like Stretch may be down for the count, and then in comes Savior of the Day, Lefty, who has been running around the premises, cutting down beams that support their home so at some point drayton's like are you who's sawing down their own home which i think is a callback callback to him in the first film being like your brother sawed the front door he doesn't even care about his home so like again feeding back into that we are now fully in the third act lefty shows up and he is fully unhinged at this point he has been screaming about hell and taking it back. He has found the body of his nephew, Franklin, and he is ready to rumble. So he takes a couple swings. He hits Drayton with a, with the saw. Uh, Stretch comes to. She's taken off. Chop Top is like, I got her. And so... Drayton, fatally injured at this point, is underneath the platform where Lefty and Leatherface are fighting. Um, They are dueling with chainsaws. Lefty gets a chainsaw all the way through. Leatherface. I don't know how it didn't clip his spine. I don't know how Leatherface is going to be alive, but he fully gets it through. Leatherface keeps fighting with this chainsaw through him. So this long chainsaw that he had, he pushes through Leatherface and then he's dueling with the mini chainsaws that he has and Drayton is complaining about taxes and small business owners and knowing that time is up and like wow he really cleaned out his hemorrhoids oh wait I'm gonna die so then he picks up a grenade to blow up the thing and blows up the the bunker that they're in so he kills himself Lefty, Leatherface, and Grandpa. Now I would have liked there to be a better death for Lefty I mean, it was pretty obviously that he was probably going to die from the beginning of this film, but I feel like a better death than, oops, a blow up that we don't see on screen. I think for all three of those characters is a weaker point of this film. Anyway, Chop Top and Stretch start into the final girl circuit. She is running around. She gets to the top of the rock tower where we see the matriarch, of the Sawyer family, enshrined, with a chainsaw in her hand. So eventually, after a kind of protracted, like, episode of taunting between Chop Top and her, we see her grab the chainsaw, try to pick it up. He's slashing at her and doing it, and she's just tenaciously going after it. Uh, She swings, hits him with it in a shot that is clearly the chainsaw is off. (laughs) Like, for all the times the chainsaw has been on dangerously, this one, it is clearly off. So she pushes Chop Top off of the tower, falling to his death, and the movie ends with her on the tower doing the dance that Leatherface does. The, like, little hip ship shake dance. I'm doing it in my chair, like, you can see me do it. But the little, like, over his head, uh saw, chainsaw over his head, Hip shaking, dingle shaking dance he does. So it's a disturbing connotation. Has she become crazy like the Sawyers? Is she living on the legacy? Like, I don't. She's swinging the chainsaw around in triumph sometimes, people say. Like, it's a kind of confusing ending, but I think it's a pretty fun film. It's, if you are ready for fun and humor and camp if you like camp this is the movie for you it is campy 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 so yeah that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 next week we're going to be doing Leatherface Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 uh this movie that movie came out four years after this film so this film did good enough that uh the sequel is eminent afterwards Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Leatherface, brings us Kane Hodder's turn at Leatherface, which is exciting, and it gives us Vigo Mortensen in the film. There are, starting with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, there is always a, how why the fuck is this person in this movie film, in, in these films? Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the series, is a vehicle to start a lot of people's careers. So that's what we're going to do next week. Until then, I'm Spencer. I'm the ghostess. You can find me all over the internet as Miss nintendo 64 You can follow the podcast all over the internet at a Halloween club. Please like, share, give us a star ratings on iTunes or Spotify. I mean, please do it on iTunes, less on Spotify. Just let your friends know. Follow us on Twitter. Talk to me about movies. It'll be a fun time. So you know what time it is. Think for You got one choice, boy. Sex or the saw.